Hi everyone, David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice, wishing you a good winter holiday season with you and your family. I hope you're together. I hope you're all healthy and safe, and I wish you a good new year going forward. While you take your winter break, we're doing the same thing, and we're presenting to you some of our favorite episodes from the last five months. And episode 124 was definitely my favorite. Have you ever wondered what it would be like, not just to be in prison, but to be on death row? Episode 124 featured my conversation with writer Tessie Castillo and Chanton, who is born Terry Robinson, and he is a resident of Death Row in North Carolina. These two people are two of the collaborators on a book called Crimson Voices, Letters from Death Row, and they had a candid conversation with me uh, about, frankly, what it means to be a human being and a human being trying to survive and retain humanity and death row. I found it one of the most deep and meaningful conversations that I've ever had here on the podcast. I hope that you enjoy it as well. Here are Tessie Castillo and Chanton in episode 124. More than 2 million Americans are incarcerated in prisons and jails. These are often violent, difficult, and unhealthy places. But if prison is dangerous, how much more so is death row? And how does a person live knowing the only way out might be death by execution? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your personal nerd geek and guide to all things in the criminal legal system and still somehow enjoying that wonderful day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. We've talked about it here on Criminal Injustice in many ways, but the fundamentals remain. The United States, with a little over 4% of the world's population, incarcerates almost 25% of all the prisoners in the world. We do this at the highest rate in the world, 698 incarcerated persons per 100,000 population, ahead of Russia, China, Brazil, ahead of everybody. Western democracies generally use prison much less. For example, the rates in Canada are 114 per 100,000, France 104, and Germany 77 per 100,000. Now, we've talked about this to a number of people with deep expertise, real experience from both inside and outside the system. For example, Tyrone Wirtz, a formerly incarcerated person who now helps run the Inside Out program. We talked to him in episode 83. Wesley Keynes, formerly incarcerated person who is now chief of staff at Bronx Defenders. We talked to him in episode 114, 114. And John Wetzel, the secretary of corrections in Pennsylvania and a former warden in episode 63. 
All of them helped us to understand just how difficult it can be to make it through prison, to live as a human being there. Few said it better than Rodney, an incarcerated person in New York State, enrolled inside his prison as a student in the Bard Prison Initiative College Program, featured in Lynn Novak's PBS documentary, College Behind Bars, which we discussed with the director, Ann Wesley Keynes, in episode 114. Here is Rodney. I've been incarcerated for 13 years. And from my experience, I can tell you, prison is here to punish us. It's here to warehouse us. But it's not about um, rehabilitating. It's not about creating um, productive beings. College, it helps us become civic beings. It helps us understand that we have an interest in our community, that Our community is a part of us and we are a part of it. Now, if prison itself is hard, harder and more violent and more difficult than most of us can even imagine, what about death row? What about incarceration on a death sentence? Which, if all goes according to the verdict and the appeals don't work out, means not only that you'll never get out, it means that the state will take you one day whatever else you do in prison, and they'll strap you down and kill you. How do you live with that? How do you retain and maintain your humanity? How do you find a reason to go on living? Our guests today are going to help us understand that world. One of them encountered death row from the outside as a teacher and writing coach for those living there. The other guest lives on death row right now. Together, they and others have written a book. Tessie Castillo is an author from Durham, North Carolina, where she's an international journalist as well. Ms. Castillo writes articles from around the world that explore criminal justice, drug policy, and racial justice. Her first book is called Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, published in 2020 by Black Rose Writing. And she wrote that book with four co-authors, all men serving death sentences in North Carolina, whom she met while volunteering, teaching a journaling class in North Carolina's Central Prison in 2014. Our second guest is Terry Robinson, who goes by the name Chanton. Mr. Robinson met Ms. Castillo through the prison journaling class where he was already incarcerated. He is 46 years old. He has been on death row at the prison for 20 years, since 2000. His conviction stemmed from the murder of a restaurant manager during a robbery. Mr. Robinson was one of the writers from death row. He contributed eight essays to Crimson Letters. Those essays, like the others in the book, were written after the prison class ended. Mr. Robinson is currently working on an urban fantasy novel and a memoir. More of his writing can be found on the blog Walk in Those Shoes. Our audio is recorded via Zoom and from Mr. Robinson via a prison phone system that is patched into Zoom. We'll do the best we can with all of the audio quality. 
Uh, Tessie, let me turn to you first, if I could, uh, and let me ask about your journey to writing this book with having volunteered to do the class uh, at North Carolina Central Prison. Uh, you describe in the uh, first chapter of the book uh, going into the prison, feeling tense, nervous, wondering how they would react to you since you were female uh, and they would all be male. Uh, you also were asked to keep the class secret by people at the prison, by people who'd done programming there, no public notice, because the public would not want to see any real sign that the men were being anything but punished. Uh, you were expecting perhaps men who were uh, accused of very awful crimes, uh, but that's not what you found. Tell us a little bit about those initial experiences. Um, thanks for having me on. I appreciate Absolutely. you here. So when I walked on to death row, like you said, I was nervous. Um, I had a lot of preconceived notions about people who'd been convicted of murder. Uh, I was a little bit scared. But what I found when I actually started teaching the classes with them, and these were journaling classes, so they were really encouraged to write about their pasts and, and who they were and to reflect on uh, their journey, both before they got to death row and since they had been there. And what I discovered from talking to them was just this incredible level of just insight and um, intelligence and humor and humility that I just really hadn't expected. Tell me in particular about a man uh, named Terry who uh, read a story in that first class. He was sort of the first volunteer, and he read a story about a trapped bird. And it was so, uh, it hit you so, so much that you included a paragraph from it in the book. Would you read that paragraph? It's on page four. Sure, happy to. The day I watched that bird escape, not once did I consider what the ordeal must have been like for it. I didn't consider how it must have been swallowed up in the darkness, the loneliness and confusion it must have felt. Would its family miss it? Were there young that depended on its safe return for survival? Today on death row, I am that bird. Yet here, there are no cracks to breach, no slits from which to escape. And the only air to breathe holds the aroma of death. Well, I understand why that hits you pretty hard. Um, uh, others then read their stories and uh, the class kind of blossomed, as you described it, uh, and uh, you learned how much uh, these men had certain things in common with each other. Um, what were those things? Almost all of them came from very poor backgrounds. Uh, the majority of them were African-American. They had had uh, very little effective counsel during their trials. They were often raised in environments where you had to kind of be the tough guy to survive. And sometimes the effects of being that tough guy led to acts of murder, both committed by and against uh, the people in my classes. Um, one really striking thing, I, I had always thought that people on death row were convicted of really grisly crimes. 
But one thing I learned was there were even a couple of guys in my class who were not convicted of killing anyone at all. They had simply been present at a murder. Someone else had uh, killed someone. In one case, it was just the getaway driver who was in my class. And in both of those cases, the actual murderer did not get the death penalty while the accomplice or getaway driver did. And that was another thing that just completely shocked me. And I understand why. You know, that's I teach that very thing in criminal law. That's called felony murder. Uh, and not all states have it, but most do. And it is really shocking when people learn that you can actually go to prison, actually go to death row when you're not the, the person who pulled the trigger and maybe even that the person who did doesn't end up with the same penalty. So you're there, the class is going. About six months into the class, um, there was a case that was in the news down there in North Carolina. Uh, it was uh, a notorious case, and the uh, person who was on trial was convicted, uh, got a death sentence, uh, and uh, you were sort of observing this uh, uh, both as a member of the public reading the press and also as this person who was inside teaching people on death row. Um, and it really had sunk into you by this time. You said in the book that the people on death row uh, were real human beings. And it moved you enough that you decided to write a letter uh, to one of the big newspapers um, uh, in North Carolina about your experiences to kind of refute what you thought was the public lust for blood. It, it, would you turn to page seven in the book and read that, uh, that ex, an excerpt from that uh, letter that, uh, uh, that we're looking at here? Sure. I have been meeting twice a month with about 15 men on death row, and the experience has been both edifying and moving. I don't see heartless killers, though they might have killed in a moment of heartlessness. I see anger problems, stubbornness, lack of self-control, immaturity, and miseducation. I see those qualities in people outside prison too. I see them in myself sometimes. But in these men, I also see pain, regret, a capacity for kindness and self-reflection, and a desire to be seen for what they are, flawed, and very human. After spending time with these men and listening to their stories, I don't claim to know them thoroughly or to fully comprehend why they did what they did, nor do I defend the crimes of any man on death row, but I will defend their humanity because I see it every time I walk through those prison doors. Now, that strikes me as genuine and deeply felt and, uh, you know, a real product of your experience with the men in your journaling class. What was the reaction to that letter when it was published? The prison banned me. They canceled my class uh, and they forbid me from going back not only to that prison, but to any prison in North Carolina. They banned you. They just said, don't bother, don't come back, you're not welcome here. Yes. Wow. So not a good reaction. Uh, it turned out that that warning you'd had from somebody else who taught or volunteered there to not make anything public was actually on the money. Um, 
But uh, that wasn't the end of the writing activity that you were involved with uh, with these men. Talk a little bit, if you would, about the correspondence and other kinds of writing that you did uh, with the men uh, on death row after you were banned. After my class was canceled, I decided to reach out to the men through letters. I had really felt that the relationships that we had formed and the friendships were very valuable to me. And I wanted to continue them even if I couldn't be there in person. So I reached out to several of them via letter and we started corresponding. And that correspondence went on for years. We would write about family and freedom and faith and political issues, everything. Uh, And I just, I I came um, to accumulate many, many stacks of letters that I thought were just gems. And after a while, I started thinking, I have to share these with the public. I can't be the only person who sees what's in these men. So I proposed to five of them that we put together a book using the letters and essays that they had written to me. Um, and so over the next four years, that's what, that's what we did. And with the four men who completed the process, that was what became Crimson Letters. And thus we have this great book, which, by the way, we'll put up a link to it on the website that you'll be able to see. Uh, you can go, you can purchase, you can read. Um, and that is what became the essays in the book. All the essays are from the period after the actual class. They were the ones, they were essays done through this letter writing process. Tessie, tell us, what were the challenges of writing the book uh, in the circumstances that you faced? The challenges were incredible. When we started writing this book, we had no access to the phones. Uh, There were the men on death row were only allowed to make one phone call per year for 10 minutes. Per year? Per year. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a way to have any relationships at all. No, it's very deliberately. It's a way to punish them even further by completely cutting them off from everyone in their life. Um, so I was not able to correspond with them through the phone as I am now. So it was all letters. Um, and they would send me essays and, and I would read them over and make suggestions, send them back. They would have to rewrite the entire essay by hand, send it back to me again. I would make more edits, suggestions. They would have to rewrite it again by hand. There were a lot of times throughout the process, aside from writing the essays, where we had to make executive decisions as a group about things like what essays get included in the book, what essays go first, what essays go last. And it was important to me that I not be the all-powerful editor who just hands down these decisions. And I Uh wanted them to be part of the process. Yes. So I would allow them to, so I would write to them and and ask for their input, but I would write four different letters and then I would get four completely different responses. And they often disagreed very strongly with one another. And I had to just kind of try to navigate that space, not being able to speak with them over the phone or gather any of them in a room to be able to hash out these issues. So there were several times during the years we were working on this where one or more of us quit the project or almost quit. Um, Cause it was just so, there was so much tension at times over 
disagreements in how to handle the book. And then once the book was out, was it freely available within the prison, within death row? So when the book was published in March, uh, I was able to get a couple of copies into the prison. But then the guards came and they confiscated them from the men within a week. Uh, and they officially banned the book. So Crimson Letters is also banned from the prison system in North Carolina. And my co-authors can't even have a copy of their own work. Wow, which is the reason um, that when we uh, turn to Chantan and ask him to read a couple of segments, he's actually not reading from a copy of the book. Mm -hmm. I had to photocopy some pages from my book and mail them to him so he could read. Let's turn now to our other guest, Terry Robinson, who is known as Chantan. And uh, I'd like to ask you uh, just where you are right now. Tell us where you're located, where you're standing, what you, where you are. Well, at the moment, I am currently on North Carolina's death row. And I'm talking to you guys by way of phone. I just came back in from recreation, um, but sure, that's where I am right now. I'm, I'm currently on death row. Okay, and I know you've been there for about 20 years. I think many people actually might imagine like a literal kind of row of cells separated from the rest of the prison. Can you describe what the place is like so that people listening actually know what it is, how it's laid out? Uh, uh, are, there, are you with other incarcerated persons? Uh, is there communal space? Are you together? So our death row is, um, like n no other death row that I had seen before my personal experience here. Um, a lot of death rows are most like jail cells where they are like locked down for most of the day, 23 hours a day. When they do recreation, it's like one guy at a time and he's usually restrained with some type of um, um, handcuffs or waist or chain shackles. But here on North Carolina's death row, the structuring is different. We live in these pods, like this huge dorm. And in each dorm, um, there are cells that are in a row, but they are a top layer and a bottom layer, a top tier and a bottom tier. And the format, the daily regimen for death row is that we are outside of our cells for the bulk of the day, majority of the day, we are out in this huge day room. We all kind of congregate in the day room. Um, um, our cells are locked at night during during lockdown, lights out, and that's the only time we are like really isolated. Or there's times throughout the day where we just would like to have some personal time. We can always kind of wave the officer in this huge booth. It's called a PC, a pod control booth, and they'll close our door. So we do we do have that option, but for the most part, our doors are open, and we just kind of congregate throughout the day room, but there are different dorms in which to do this. So my dorm is pod eight, and there's a pod seven and a six and a five. There's also one, two, three, and four. I can't, I don't have free reign to those pods. I can't just walk into those pods or those type of things, but inside of my own pod, sure, I have a lot of like free uh, movement. I can come to the phone. I, we have free showers, um, mop room closets, and things like that. Our cafeteria is also a little different because we use the same cafeteria as the rest of the prison. So even though our facility is isolated away from the rest of the prison, we share that space, not at the same time as the other inmates, 
there's a, there's a structure. They call our group, they call the other guys. But we do leave our unit and walk across the hallway into this cafeteria. And that's the only time we are ever really off the unit other than we, when we're going to visitation. And that's how, typically the structure of death row. How many men are there in your pod and, if you know, on death row altogether in that prison? At last count, there was 140 men on death row, but one guy just a few days ago had some relief in court, and he's now going back to um, his county jail. And a lot of times that means that that's the end of his death row tenure, and he probably won't be, be coming back. So I think at, right now there's 139 men, roughly, on death row. So pod numbers vary. Each pod holds 24 men. There are 24 cells in each pod. But I'm fortunate to be on a pod where the numbers are quite um, smaller, which can really give way to a lot of... Like, in, in prison, all you really have is space. And that is just so essential to function in, inside of prison, being incarcerated. And when you have 24 men, then it equates to less space. But I'm on a block with only 13 men. So it's just it's just a lot of like phone time, extra phone time, um, TV time, and those things. There are various blocks that do hold 24, but there's only like one or two. The rest of the blocks are, they vary between 17 to 20 men. Okay. Now, you've been in other incarceration settings. What makes death row different? So I've always had this idea that when people share an affliction, it unites them, it bonds them in a way that um, memories of with family or um, uh, marriages and vows at the altar in, in ways that none of those can amount to. When you're facing um, an affliction like death penalty with other men, then you all have that in common. You all can empathize on that level alone. And what it does is it unites you in the struggle. Um, and it kind of lends itself to this this brotherhood that we share in each other's um, um, affliction and, and, our, and, our, and our pain, our mental anguish. We know what each other's going through when we lose family. And we can't be there for like the funeral arrangements, or we can't be in those last moments to find closure. So being in this space together with the death row is different from other prisons because in other prisons there's a process where they ship in and they ship out daily. It's part of the prison dynamics. There's an intake process and an outtake process. So you can never really get fully familiar with the environment that you're around. Like you're comfortable one day, then all of a sudden you're on a prison bus going to another prison. But death row doesn't have an intake and ex in, uh, intake process. There is no other unit in North Carolina that is death row. So we are housed together consistently for decades, tens of fifteens and twenty years. And what that does is just I mean, it, it creates in itself this inadvertent familiarity where we just know each other. You live around a person long enough, you become to know them outside of um their exports, you begin to learn their personalities, who they are, so what makes them tick. And I think that's the magic of death row. 
That is so interesting. I would never have expected that. And I doubt anybody else listening does either because you're effectively formed into uh, maybe family is too strong a word, but you, you have this uh, common bond uh, and you're together for long, long periods of time. Um, is, you know, I think people have the, da- the idea that prison... Uh, and, and with good reason, you know, from what they see in the media and all, I suppose, they have the idea that prison is very dangerous, that it can be very violent. Um, is that true on death row? Uh, if it is, or even in regular prison, how do you psychologically cope with that? How do you as a human being deal with the presence, the ever-present lethal danger, if that's true? And I want to leave that question open. It may or may not be. So it, it absolutely is true. Prison um, does have the potential to be a very um, it does invoke this 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 element of danger at all times. But so does society in certain areas, in a lot of areas. I mean, you could be just like at the mall, and someone could just come in, and and all of a sudden you have an altercation or a situation. So death row, in that sense, is no different. I think the difference is the expectancy here. When you um, place a, a several amount, a certain amount of people who are stereotyped as being bad guys, then the expectancy for violence and danger is higher. And that does exist in other prisons. But the difference between death row is that when you fight a person on death row, um, or you have a, uh, a an altercation over something tedious. There is no like separation from this person. You have to you, you have to continue to um, exist throughout your incarceration with this person. There is no getting away from your enemies. So it's it's much easier to settle our differences. Um, there are fights here on death row. There have been fights, but they range about once every five years. And a lot of times. The two guys that fight before the day is out, they've made amends because that is what it takes to coexist in an environment from which there is no escape. An environment from which there is no escape. Um, I am really struck by how you put that. Um, have During your time on death row, have people been executed there in North Carolina? Um, if, if yes, um, what's the effect on the people? What, what was the effect on you? So, sure, there have definitely been some executions in my um, time, my 20 years here on death row. The first execution happened about two months into my prison sentence. And when it took place, there was this transition in my head that I left the county jail and I just received this death sentence. And you almost have this, like, there's this natural process of being naive to your circumstances. And so when I came to death row, like it wasn't real for me. Like I did feel the weight of my 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 circumstance, but not like the other guys who had been here 20 years or it was in the last stages of their appeals. So for me, I was really like wrapped in, into, in this naivete that my execution or any kind of um, court procedures was so far off that it wouldn't happen to me or I would get help and I would go home and I was just kind of really um, just naive to the seriousness of my circumstances. But then they executed a guy. And 
it was just like a wash of despair throughout the whole death row because everyone knew this guy except me, of course. So I didn't really share in the same sentiment, the same sense of loss as everyone everyone else did. Of course, I faked like I, I mean, it wasn't much like faking. You just you don't want to be happy at that time. No, so that was really all the effort that it took. But I certainly didn't feel that same sense of loss as everyone else because I didn't know the guy and I was just so distant from that reality. And then there were several other executions that happened. And the same thing happened. I was just kind of wrapped in my own world. Like, this wouldn't happen to me. But then they executed a guy that was on my block, who I had lived with for four years at the time. And we were really, really close. Like, I was so used to waking up to him every day. He was an um, uh, essential part of getting through the day, of my day. And then all of a sudden, he was gone. And that's when death row became, like, real for me. And how do I cope with that? There is no coping with losing someone to execution. There really, you never get past that. And I think I still suffer in a way. There's these small little increments amount of, of anguish and suffer that don't amount to much. Um, I try not to let them affect my progress, but you never really get over it. You never really uh, learn to cope with it. But death row is a, a, about survival. Like, if you let the despair eat away at you, it will destroy you. And so I just had to hold on, like, really tight and grasp to the to the faith and the hope that there would be um, an end to execution someday. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Tessie Castillo uh, and Chanton. Uh, both are co-authors of Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi everyone, David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice. Our guests are Tessie Castillo and Chanton, and they are both co-authors uh, with some other people of the book Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. Chanton, before the break, we were talking about your experiences on Death Row, and uh, I want to take you to a particular experience you wrote about in Crimson Letters. Um, prison, as you've said, is a place that, that is really challenging uh, to one's hope. And um, how do you have hope is a main question that surfaces over and over in the book. You talk in the book about a young guy, a kind of fresh-faced guy coming in to the row. Uh, you call him Youngin. And you kind of struck up a friendship with Youngin uh, when he came in. And tell us the story of that man, uh, Youngin, and what happened to him. So Youngin was um, a guy from, I think his family was very, um, like, they were struggling. His dad was a military um, member. His mom worked. She was a church goer. And he had really high hopes and potentials when he was younger. But then he got older, and in his adolescent years, he made some really poor choices, uh, gang activities and those type of things. And 
it led him to death row. He was charged with two counts of murder. And I think that knowing him, these were not really words that he ever mentioned, but I saw his demeanor, his demeanor dwindle over the years. And I think that it was because he could never really get past the idea that he had let his family and himself down. And so it just, like, really consumed him. And so he became, um, he, like, was, I won't call him a nuisance, but he started to indulge in, like, um, getting high on pills and those type of things. Anything to cope. Sure. And I think it just never really did anything for him. And so his end result was that one day he walked into a mop room closet and he strung a sheet up and he wrapped it around his neck and he hung himself. And at the time, um, like he was the closest friend I had here. He and oh. I came here together. And so that really kind of awakened. I, mean, I remember the moment when they said, Youngin is dead. Like I thought, I felt like a piece of me died with him. I felt like I was being deprived um, of the fight because a lot of my fight here on death row was through him. Like we was in the struggle together and I didn't know how to fight without him. So I was kind of really, I was down. I was like, I didn't know how to, how to accept a friend's suicide the first time I, something like that ever happened to me. Yeah. Um, and suicide is one of the chief problems in all prisons, but I can imagine death row is no different. You know, you come out of that uh, story in the book of Young and Suicide, and you describe how your life was different after that. Can I ask you to read the paragraph you wrote that begins at the bottom of page 108 in the book? Sure, sure. Afterwards... Death Row changed for me. Before I had hope of a reversal and acquittal, suddenly the chaos was real. I might not leave Death Row alive. Anger stirred inside me at the executions. I didn't want the pain that I had caused to be the end of my chapter. I didn't want my voice stifled in a pine box. I didn't want my children to wonder what kind of father I would have been, nor my accusers to determine the man I was. I didn't want my life a blemish on history. What I wanted was a say in how I was remembered. I wanted the people I loved to know that I tried to be a better man. I'd seen how regrets could consume a man's spirit. I wanted my regrets to be a tool for change. And if I should perish on death row, then I wanted nothing more than to be at peace with myself. That is why I write. So writing is one of the ways that you try to be a better man, um, and it really shows in the book. Uh, I wonder what else you could tell us. What else? In in what other ways do you try to be a better man, a better person, to not be consumed by regret? Charity. I was really. I've always been a charitable person, but more so here on death row. Um, and I will say that. The reason writing is so pivotal, like so pivotal in my process, is because, like, when the lights are out, when the cell doors close, and when, like, there is no voices chanting for your death or your freedom one way or another, like, when you are in that moment and you are faced with yourself, like, that is full accountability. There's no reason to lie. There's no reason to 
boost yourself up. There's no reason to dress yourself in this popularity because it's just you and your deeds and your misdeeds as well. So I write to face myself. I write it because that's when I am most entitled to the truth. And a lot of my life wasn't the truth. It was me dressed in these different personalities and sub-personalities and being whoever I thought I needed to be to gain acceptance. So writing is my, um, it is my armor against acceptance. It says that I accept myself. So the process you're describing, that, that presence in very dark moments, when things are very, very stark, I can only imagine uh, that that has got to be very challenging for one's mental health and stability. And I'm sure you see it in other people, and you probably experience it yourself. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. So it's, I think it's a thing of knowing like who you are and the things that you've done and all the secrets that you've kept, all the misconduct, all the poor choices and the misbehavior, and no one knows but you. And so for me, like, when I am in that moment, like, I deserve to be, we're all human, and we all make mistakes, and I deserve to be um, prone to error and make mistakes as well. So I'm just learning that um, my my mistakes in life and my my behavior and my demeanor, it doesn't exclude me from um, being worthy of being of human qualities and human connections. And so I think that's what allows me to be open. It's much easier when you write it on paper because people can be judgmental. So I would rather just kind of um, be open in with myself, uh, do my writing, and then I can let people either enjoy or criticize the writing itself as long as it's the truth. I would like to give them the truth. But it is a very stark moment, like you described. It is a very um, intense moment. Um, it's hard to breathe when you look back at your paper and you just cluster about all the things that you wish you could take back. You know, in this atmosphere that you've described in so many ways, uh, executions going on, suicides, difficulties, yet a bond of solidarity with other people, you know, I, the question that kept popping up to me with your writing and the essays of the other men that appear in the book is how does this person retain their humanity? How at, at your core do you, do you remain a functioning human being? And I think you give an answer to that uh, in the book that I'd like you to read. If you look at page 123 in the book, uh, that paragraph that begins with the words death row, would you read that for us? Death Row isn't a place that lacks humanity, like some people say. It is where humanity is rediscovered and restored. On Death Row, the meaningfulness of life tremendously exceeds the inevitability of death. We're all human beings, and as such, we're prone to mistakes. But many inmates are simply paradigms of the great fall before triumph. Our humanities are not beyond repair. And any judicial system that conceptualizes such nonsense is flawed. To give up on a person's humanity says a lot about our own, and we can never fully share in the humanity of others until we have recognized and repaired our own tendencies towards cruelty and unconscious bias. This means forgiveness, accountability, 
faith, and in many cases, a second chance. No matter our personal or collective opinions, no one would ever deserve to die. You've said that better than I think anybody I know could. Um, let me, in our last minute together, give both of you a chance to answer this question. What is it about death row or the people there that you would most like listeners to know and remember? Tessie, I'll start with you first because I want to give Chantan the last word. I think the message that I walked away with after interacting with men on death row is that they're not that different than those of us on the outside. We have this story that they're some special breed of monster. And not only is that not true, but I found that sometimes you meet people who've been through really intense suffering and they've used that to grow. And they have this level of humanity that's in a way even deeper than those of us who've never experienced that level of suffering. And that's what I see in the men on death row. It's a depth that's unique because of the suffering and how many of them have um, grown through it. Chanton, what would you like people to walk away with? So today I saw a protest, and for the first time I saw, I'm sure there have been other examples, but for me, it was the first time I saw a sign that said, incarcerated lives matter. And that is a fight that we have to pick up um, in the midst of all of these other social um, inequalities. And so for me, I would like for people to remember that incarcerated men are people too, that death row men are people too. Uh, we've come from families, we have love and um, memories, and we've done a lot of good in our life in some room. We have children and all these other wonderful experiences that um, make us human. And our misdeeds, no matter how bad they are, do not exclude us from our humanity. No one has the right to take away another person's humanity. So I would like people to remember that even death row men and all men that are incarcerated are people too. Our guests for this interview have been Chanton. He's also known as Terry Robinson. He is incarcerated for murder at North Carolina Central Prison on the prison's death row. Along with three other men on death row there, he is one of the co-authors, along with our other guest, Tessie Castillo, of the book Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row, published in 2020 by Black Rose Writing. We've got a link to the book on our website. Thanks to both of you for being my guests. Thank you, Dr. Harrison. It was a pleasure. One final note, there's a book club uh, for this book, Crimson Letters. Go to tessiecastillo.com for all the details. Click on Book Club. And for each session of the book club with Tessie Castillo, one of the men who is a co-author of the book will join the book club from death row for a live discussion. Stick around. We have Lawyers Behaving Badly coming right up.
Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this edition of A Lawyer Behaving Badly from Law 360 and the ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Keith McWork from Pennsylvania. As regular listeners to Criminal Injustice and this feature know, so many of our stories of lawyers behaving badly really make you react with ugh or other expressions of disgust. Some leave you laughing at utter boneheadedness or speechless at the downright dishonesty of my fellow members of the legal profession. But there are some stories like this one that just leave you saying, what? Wait, what? Lawyer McWork, practicing in a firm as one of its named partners, seemed to have his business in hand when the unexpected struck. He collapsed at a work-related event, unconscious, and was badly injured when he fell. He was hospitalized and required surgery, not to mention some long recovery. Now, like any good set of lawyers, the ones at his firm knew they had to pull together to cover Lawyer McWork's client matters for however long he might be out. The associates at the firm divided up his files and went to work making arrangements and handling things. And that's when they began to discover something very, very odd. The associates looking in Lawyer McWork's files noticed a pattern. I'll quote here from a disciplinary complaint that was filed later. The associates, quote, began to discover mounting evidence of a serious ethical misconduct. Close quote. McWork was soon fired from the firm and the misconduct was all reported to the state ethics authorities, resulting in his temporary suspension from practice pending a full investigation. What was it that they found in those files, you ask? It seems that Lawyer McWork was lying to his clients, telling them about things he had done, filing complaints to start lawsuits on their behalf, filing motions, responding to the other side, even settling cases when he had not done any of those things. He basically seemed to know what to tell clients about their cases, what should be happening, what he should be doing, but in quite a number of these matters, he never did any of it. Things sometimes got worse, too. He sometimes forged documents and records to attempt to show his clients that he had done the things he had lied to them about having done, but he hadn't. In some cases, Lawyer McWork actually told clients that they had received settlement money or funds as a result of a judgment in their favor. And this was not pocket change. In four cases, the amounts were and even $424,000. That last one for a client that was a bank foreclosing on a mortgage. So when the money was paid to Lawyer McWork on behalf of his clients, he was keeping it for himself, right? Well, no. According to the disciplinary complaint, Lawyer McWork, quote, did not mishandle or misuse funds entrusted to him by any client or from the firm. And how could he take the money anyway? No work had actually been 
done, so there was actually no money. So, to satisfy the clients whom he had told had money coming, he paid. He paid the clients himself out of his own pocket. The clients were not out any money because Lawyer McWork was paying for the made-up settlements and foreclosures and what have you, which he had failed to make happen at all. I told you, what the... In his disciplinary proceedings and in his own reports of his misconduct to the authorities after discovery of his wrongdoing, Lawyer McWork was forthright about what he did, expressing deep remorse, and he said that he had anxiety, depressed mood, and engaged in, quote, avoidance. He is now under treatment. At no point, the authorities said, did McWork ever lie to a court. So the outcome, a suspension of four years retroactive to the date of his temporary suspension, which has been in effect since he was fired. Wow, we've seen it all here on Lawyers Behaving Badly, but for this installment, maybe we should change the name of our feature to Lawyers Behaving Strangely, so strangely no one could have guessed. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, past tense. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, why don't you call in and ask Dave? Call 412-407-3389. Leave us your first name, where you're calling from, and your brief question. Also, give us some contact information, but we won't share that. Again, the number is 412-407-3389. You can also ask Dave by going to our website, clicking on the Ask Dave tab, and write your question out. Remember that we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really, really appreciate those of you who have made that decision and given us support. It makes a difference. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Rollerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Criminal Injustice Podcast.